Welcome to the New Models Podcast. It's been more than two months since Russia escalated its war in Ukraine. While Western media has largely focused on the physical combat and its devastation, we wanted to come back to the question of how warfare plays out in the information space today and what other sectors it activates in doing so. To help us grasp the full extent of contemporary cyber war, we invited scholar of the political economy of information and Chernobyl specialist Svetlana Matvienko on the show to discuss. Svetlana is an assistant professor of critical media analysis at Canada's Simon Fraser University. She's joining us from her hometown of Kamyanets Podilsky in southwestern Ukraine. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-hosts Caroline Busta and Daniel Keller. Our guest is Svetlana Matvienko. Let's get into it. For this episode, we are being joined by Svetlana Matvienko, who is an assistant professor of critical media analysis at Simon Fraser University in Canada, where she teaches the political economy of information. She is also a co-author of the 2020 title, Cyber War and Revolution. Since before the war began, Svetlana has been in Ukraine, teaching her courses remotely and also bearing witness to the conditions on the ground through a regular series she has published with Institute of Network Cultures, which some listeners may know as Garrett Loving's initiative operating out of Amsterdam's University of Applied Sciences. We first reached out to Svetlana a few weeks ago after reading a cogent entry that she titled Response to Western Leftists from the Ukrainian Battlefield, wherein she showed that when it comes to disinformation, even well-meaning, highly literate colleagues are not immune. So we're very thrilled to be joined today by Svetlana. My understanding is that you are still in Ukraine. You are speaking to us from Ukraine. Could you, first of all, hello, (laughs) and thank you for being here. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about where you are and what you see out your window and how you're doing? Hello, and thank you for the invitation. So I am in Kamenitz-Podilsky, which is a small town in the southwest of Ukraine. This is one of those regions that hasn't been heavily hit so far. Although we hear air raid sirens all the time, we had three or four today. That's kind of the soundscape in which we have been living for quite a while. You know, they always say that as strange as it sounds, but you get used to the war. Hmm. And now we also, we've learned to live with the sirens, maybe repressed it in a certain way. And myself, I like to speak about it as really absorbing the war regime Hmm. somewhere viscerally deep in the body. It's like at night, I already don't run to any bomb shelter. And in fact, I do not have anyone around my building. And the little basement that I have here, it's not really a bomb shelter where I would be able to hide should we have a real attack. 
it would collapse immediately and I wouldn't be able to get out of there. So the only kind of response, which is very kind of helpless in a certain way, just to curl and to pull the blanket over your head like a kid, you know, and that's what I'm doing. And the other night I caught myself on doing this and I didn't even realize it when I did it. But when it was called off, I sort of stretched and that's where I caught myself on doing this. Mm. And I thought, wow, it's in my body now. Yeah, a true kind of Pavlovian command. Absolutely, right? So it's like all this almost cybernetic, if yeah, you wish. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it's, it's like this particular in-mixing of bodies, machines, yeah. regimes, you know, in this event of war. It's interesting. I know you, there was this passage in maybe it was your most recent post to the Institute of Network Cultures where you spoke about being in a country at war, but being on the outskirts of the conflict. And mm-hmm. I called to mind this. We recently watched uh, Tarkovsky's um, The Sacrifice. I think maybe they're in uh, Finland or something, somewhere you know in the north. And there's this sound of jets going above or missiles flying. You don't know, and you know the windows rattle. But you know what can you do? You know you can participate in the sense that your body is activated by this, but you can't materially intervene, right? It's a very interesting psychological space you must be in right now as you're witnessing this. Yeah, absolutely. And the topic that I've been working in is the topic of imminency. Mm -hmm. And that is connected with this initial intelligence report that uh, Joe Biden was announcing before the war. And this word came out of his mouth, that the war is imminent, he said. And it's interesting, there is no precise translation of this word in Ukrainian. So you know that the war is imminent, but is it definite? Is it most likely? Is it kind of likely? Is it this and this is this? So there were even some discussions about what exactly he meant. For me, this strange and not translatable word still describes my being. You know, it's here, but it's not. Yeah. But at the same time, now it's not only about the beginning of the war. It's about, even more so in the most recent parts of my diary, it became about the end. Right. So the end of this war is also imminent. So is it definite or is it likely what this imminence is that state of not knowing how far or how close it is, which precisely describes a reality of cyber war, Mm -hmm. how I and my co-author theorize it. Precisely. I mean, that's a great transition into this broader understanding of cyber war. I think when we hear the term, we immediately think like matrix rain gif and hoodies with fingers on keyboards. And there's specific meme type things you think of when you think of of cyber war. But actually, cyber war is this much broader category. And the term that just has stuck with me is communicative militarism. And maybe we could begin with a defining of that term. Yeah, this notion is 
important to how I, my co-author, and maybe some other people understand cyber war today. But one of the tasks that we set for ourselves was to distinguish with this particular form of militarism from cyber war as it's understood by military and security specialists. And for them, it's indeed very much about hacking, breaking through, leaking information, and attacking critical infrastructure, and so on. And our notion of cyber war encompasses them as well. But we proposed a much broader understanding of cyber war, which includes a variety of actors, not just states, as sometimes it is imagined, but also non-state actors. Some of them might be absolutely not identified, but also corporate actors, because today we know that corporations, some of them may look even more powerful than states, right? So now we have this new contestation between state actors and corporate actors, for control and power over data, over some funds, uh, information flows, and so on. So there are state, non-state, but also absolutely random actors. They can be in completely gray area. They could have their own agenda, and sometimes it's very difficult to define. In this particular cyber war between Russia, Ukraine, and other world actors, we see a variety of hacker groups that are coming from different parts of the world. Some of them clearly support Ukraine or Russia. And others, we don't know what they are doing. Why? We also don't know. (laughs) You know, with all this transparency that we have in the digital field today, it's also very non-transparent. Certain actions, even if they look like these are, for example, Russian hackers, well... Those who study cyber war should always question this. Mm. There is a certain extent, only certain extent, to which you can be certain. So that is a very foggish dimension of cyber war. But for us, it's also important that we emphasize political economic dimension of it. So it's about also control over the Internet. It's about the control of politics. It's about influence. And on the top of everything, we also pay attention to the function and the role of the user, who is an essential element in this very complex assemblage of cyber war. In the classic sense, it would be them clicking on the email. But now it's simply like believing the disinformation or even not even, or just reacting. That's actually a clarification I wanted is do you consider disinformation and misinformation as within cyber warfare? And if if that's the case, then we are all actually... Engaged in cyber warfare. Absolutely, uh, right? So, and as we like to say, very often we as users participate there unconsciously, right? So, there is psyops, which is a military term, right? Psychological operations. But if you even think about how commercials are organized, so in a certain way, a commercial or an ad is, in a sense, a psychological operation because it makes you to believe in something and to make some purchase. 
And in cyber wars that operates today, but this aspect of economic or commercial seduction of the subject and military aggression, they combine together. And that's why it becomes very dangerous. One of the things that you do is tell the history of cyber warfare as something that is co-evolved with the Cold War, but also co-evolved with the emergence of the individuated consumer. It sounds like cyber warfare uses a similar attack model as the post-war capitalist model. Absolutely. You are absolutely right. And this is a wonderful reiteration. Yeah, exactly. And that's what is not kind of uh, considered in the military and security specialist vision of cyber war. Right. And that's why it's very much about the subject, because the subject has to be led somehow, has to be tricked somehow. The subject is part of the audience. Right. right? So audiences, and we know there are many attempts of reducing certain audiences as big assemblages, like in the form of certain echo chambers or something else, right? It's all come together and helpful when you think about cyber war. Yeah, I mean, that just blew my mind. Can you give us an example? of some concrete things that you've seen happen in the past few months that would show this at work? I could. One would be very recent. And one I actually want to pull from the events of the Maidan, 2014. And that was a moment when Facebook became extremely popular in Ukraine. One of the major platforms where protesters communicated. And there was one Facebook page that at that time uh, became uh, very popular in the very short period of time. It was like it uh, broke a record. <laughs> so that page was the major information page uh, of the entire protests. And it obviously had its audience. And when I came a year after, and I was interviewing people who were managing pages like that, the person who managed that page told me an interesting story, how after the Maidan, somewhere in March, he was approached by some company from Russia asking to sell the group. Wow. I thought, wow, this group was mobilized, assembled, if you wish, it was a huge audience of one very popular Facebook page. And then someone had immediately a commercial interest in the idea that since the events are over, that can be monetized somehow. Not at all surprised, I have to and say. Where, no. Yeah, I mean. And that's where, exactly, right? So today we even <laughs> more used to this idea. But in 2014, and in the context of protests and etc. That was fascinating. The audience, because obviously the person didn't sell well, that's cool. oh, yeah. that audience, and especially to a Russian company. But there are many cases where audiences have been sold mm. in this. Well, Cambridge Analytica is like, that was their whole game plan, right? Is they were exactly. like, I guess, also producing those audiences. But yeah. That, producing, yeah. right. So, and what else can produce a huge audience if not a protest? Right. Right? That's one example. And a little different example from current events, uh, the case of Russia today, mm. which is, of course, a news company right in Russia created 20 years ago with a goal to promote a positive perception of Russia in the world. 
So that's why the company was funded very well by Russian government. It had multiple agencies in many countries. Obviously, you know of it. And suddenly here and there in different countries, the offices of Russia Today are closed. Russia Today is taking off broadcast and so on. And I'm often asked what I think about that, whether it was a good decision. And I always say that this decision is entirely symbolic, but very meaningless at this moment, because Russia today have been working for 20 years and it, it has built its audiences, the audiences with whom it has a relation of trust. But the way how Russia today usually built this relation of trust is very peculiar. So it has its mission, right, of propagating a good image of Russia. It needed people to trust it. And the way Russia today produced its critiques is very often by picking the existing critical narratives in different countries and basically replicating them. So in a certain way, the audience would hear something it already accepts, what it already believes, and what already confirms the views of particular audience. And in this sense, the audience would feel something like a solidarity. I think this, and this journalist says this, so maybe we are on the same page, but then I always say that this technique reminds me really a sci-fi horror alien. They just simulate, they replicate a particular argument without having actual ideological investment in it. Because this channel does not really have its ideology. It cares only of building what this trust, creating the audiences. Because when you create this trust, you can already throw in certain facts, including the one on Ukrainian Nazis mm -hmm. or so on. And if the audience already trusts you, it takes it as true, right? So it's all this decades, basically, work was sometimes just for a particular moment, mm. right? So maybe I'm just a little bit exaggerating here to present this, you know, framework clearly. I, but, I, mean, I, I definitely uh -huh. see that. Um, yeah, that dynamic is totally accurate. But I do think that, I mean, Russia Today specifically, it did kind of play a, a needed role where there was not a place to see that kind of critique, especially of like American foreign policy. And a lot of what mm -hmm. it said about that stuff it was not inaccurate. And obviously that's, that's to Absolutely, your point. Right? So, so yeah. but yeah, so, um, but, uh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously that had some value in it of itself. And I, I wonder like, is there something that's, that's lost if there's not a state sponsored critical media network that's uh, available anymore. And I think, you know, Obviously, uh, yeah, it, it played a role within the like Western media sphere that I don't see a replacement for, and I see much more control of speech and uh, and what can yeah in general in the West. Um, so yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how to square that exactly. I, I would, sometimes I would watch certain episodes, right? So certain news, and they would say absolutely what I think, mm -hmm. right? Uh -huh. Right. 
and, uh, and you couldn't see that elsewhere. Right. right. So there is a lot of it, and that's why precisely when you feel well, it, it has something to say. But I believe that this is precisely where it reproduces your ideas mm. or my ideas. It's not genuine there, specifically because you cannot have a, such a heavily sponsored state channel with such a huge money. This work was very sophisticated, time-consuming, and strategized. Yeah, just to tease that out a second. So when we see a media organization like RT repeating our views or repeating things that may be like taking risks, it can only do that because it has state support behind it. So it doesn't need to worry about offending advertisers or losing a certain other part of its audience. I remember my first engagement with RT was in college. Uh, They were actually investigating these sorts of 9-11 inside job sort of narratives. I remember this. But with the aesthetic and the sort of sense of gravity of like a... CNN. Exactly. exactly. Of like a cable news network. But just the point is that like a regular news media system would not have the funding to take any kinds of risks. They'd be worried about offending audiences if they were like NPR or something, or they'd be afraid of you know, losing advertisers. But the fact that it's state-sponsored meant that they could very directly play in to each of these different uh, target audiences and know that they're totally fine because they're supported by the Kremlin. But that's like ultimately just a long game to be right. able to turn to it to... turn the to, dial to, to a certain place when they want when to. When they want to. And you probably noticed that it never said anything against Russian state. Right. And it has never said anything positive about Ukraine for 20 years. Wow. Right? So you can see that there are certain themes that are either constantly present there and reiterated like mantra or never present there, Hmm. right? So even though they do indeed sometimes, you know, give some amazing deep investigations. And I remember once I actually saw a fantastic documentary about surveillance I don't remember uh, exactly how it was called, uh, but it was available on YouTube. And all my heroes were there, right? Some activists from Germany, from the US, etc., etc. And each of them giving like short interviews, addressing different aspects. And suddenly in the middle of this documentary, I see that every media installment comes from Russia today. So no other media is quoted. We constantly see this green square. And, you know, that's also almost like the work on the unconscious, right? So in a certain way, you get with this great narrative, great investigation about like this totality of surveillance today through all media platforms and technologies is presented by this only Mm. channel. Yeah. You would remember this. Okay. But I I see on your Twitter that, you know, you're, you're sharing stories by, from Radio Free Europe, um, that's officially, you know, U.S. government-sponsored mm-hmm. propaganda. Obviously, it plays an important role. I think the exact same role within countries where, you know, there's not free press, where, you know, there's not friendly press. What do you think is the fundamental distinction between the content you get from something like Radio Svoboda and mm-hmm. RT? What's the difference there? Is it more, is it more reliable, actually? Um, it's a good question. 
if I shared something from Radio, uh, Radio Svoboda, etc., this is just the English version of something that I saw, for example, in Ukrainian and didn't have an equivalent. And they literally just take the news from a particular channel, right? So for me, it's very often the English citation of a source. Uh, but I agree, so many questions could be asked on all fronts, right? So I also cite and sometimes post certain telegram channels, right? So even some government telegram channels could be sometimes questioned in a certain way because government also uh, reproduces a lot that we can identify as propaganda. Uh, in a way, sometimes it's with this positive propaganda to keep spirit or to, pe- to keep this, which is in a certain way still a certain distortion of the situation, right? So, and I know that many people are frustrated with this today because they want to have a better understanding of the situation. And at the beginning of the war, it was very important for us, for example, to to have this sort of optimistic channels. And I would even begin my mornings by reading one of those, which I completely saw (laughs) it's a little too much of optimism and maybe the distortion, but when you are so terrified, you know, you need to begin your day somehow. But I completely was very aware why I was reading, right? So with this awareness, uh, I do not even know if I can say that I have some 100% trust, right? So for me, the question of who is saying and why is always a question, no matter what I cite or quote, etc. Sometimes I do feel like it's important to bring certain attention of like Twitter publics or something else to certain fact, but you are absolutely right asking this question for sure. And I just wonder, like, this is why I just think banning RT, you're losing something, even if uh, if it's fundamentally an unreliable narrator, that, that might be true. But like trade-off, but I don't see how that's... I mean, like, at this moment yeah, how versus... Is it different this is also just gets into two yeah, subjective judgments. Like no, I just mean, Radio Svoboda is, is banned in many countries, too. Uh, I just don't see how it's... Every side is playing it. This is how I, I see it. Yeah, in this particular context, I think important arguments that you can think of is Margarita Simonian, the head of... And the most very important person for RT, when you hear her speaking, for example, she openly calls for erasure of Ukrainians, right? But she completely would participates in all these Russian talk shows, which are unbelievably poisonous kind of, you yeah. know, narratives. Trump never came even close. They're literally calling for genocide. They absolutely with happy faces and smiles. And this is, of course, a show, but you can also see that there are audiences that consume it, right? Uh, That thing about Ukrainian Nazi, you know, it also has a history. So the first time the word Nazi was used in any of this kind of political open discourses was in 2004, And that was uh, a presidential election campaign where Viktor Yanukovych competed with Viktor Yushchenko. And Yanukovych at that time hired a Russian strategist team to divide the country. And there was one interesting case when Yushchenko came to one of the eastern regions 
they set people there with slogans, etc. And this was the first time when Nazi word was used. This idea came from Russian strategists. It was used for no reason, because Yushchenko's father obviously fought in the war against fascism and whatnot. They only did it because they started connecting anything Ukrainian, because Yushchenko was presenting himself as the president who wants to revive Ukrainian culture, because it has been for almost 70 years under Soviet Union, quite in a repressed uh, situation, right? So over after the independence, there were a number of attempts to support Ukrainian culture. Ukrainian culture, in many cases, needed support. Maybe just to, to stay on this point for one more moment about communicative militarism, um, and then maybe we can mm-hmm. move on. There were some examples you gave, which I found very helpful. You know, so far you've said the Facebook example of taking a crowd and then selling it for commercial purposes. You've then said Russia Today as trying to find its audience and then deploying bits of propaganda once it has that trust. There's one other vector there that I think is interesting to mention. So we spoke about how the state and media have an embed relationship and how the state and social media platforms. Um, but there's another maybe even more insidious one, which is these platforms like Google, like Google Maps, Google Indexing. And I think I read, maybe it was on your Twitter in one of your posts, where if you have a Russian IP address, you're shown Crimea as part of Russia. But if you're not, then you see it as as Ukraine or a contested territory. And when you have something like Google Maps say that something is a state or not a state, then it's this kind of like base level primary research fact where any neutral research organization is then going to cite this as fact because it comes from this seemingly neutral source and then it will get integrated because the facts themselves have been manipulated because at the end of the day, Google is also a corporation and it has obligations to certain state actors. I hope I didn't totally steal your fire there on that, but if there's anything else you want to add on that point, it's super interesting. Thanks, Carly, for for bringing it up, because indeed this is uh, one of the greatest examples of what I identify as communicative militarism, because it shows that there is nothing neutral. And it also shows that there is a commercial interest behind platforms, the information flows that they expose us to, and so on, right? So, I mean, is that Google making a call and saying like, okay, if we don't code this as Russia, then we won't be allowed to operate in Russia. And we think that it's like worth our while to make this concession so that our service can continue Did to be served. the state require it? Right. So is it like the state, is that the kind of decision making that's happening? Like what's what's the yeah. trade-off? What do you Partly think in the balance? Exactly. Partly it's uh, a bane the new demands and the demands are very clear but also it's as a for-profit company this is just the idea of serving the client at the same time these sorts of concessions in order for google to be a 
global service right. that w- operates in all of these different states. It, those concessions are necessary for it to continue operating. And this is a subjective question, but do you see there still being an advantage to having a single all-globe internet That's layer that everyone shares or, as many people uh, believe this Uh, one outcome of this war will be a more severe splitting of global technological stacks. Yeah, I mean, the idea of a global platform still remains an incredibly seductive and powerful idea. It's an economic model. And the fact that it's all about data trades and things like this, right? And some among my students are doing new projects, trying to imagine a different economic model for, let's say, any kind of platform, whether it's a social media platform or whether it's a search engine. Um, I mean, I, I well, just about the global, whether or not that's preferable. I mean, I think if we believe in objective reality, <laughs> then there should be, I guess, a some kind of universal place to access that objective reality. And yeah, I think everyone needs a VPN to like be able to even approach you it. know access uh, d- different yeah to approach it at this point Make especially internet less global and very topologically convoluted yeah, exactly. uh, it already is that and you're you can at least sur- yeah. you can surf the topology i guess so exactly. yes that's clearly uh an essential skill to to have these days and yeah uh if you have a vpn you can access <laughs> you can still access rt and you can access radio Svoboda, and you can access whatever you want that does make you inherently more of like a global citizen. And I think there's a real class divide you see, especially in places with less free internet, like in China, the, you know, the VPN class versus the firewall class, it radically, you know, alters your worldview and, and values. I mean, I just think we should keep that as an ideal, even if it's hard. Yeah. I've been hearing a very interesting development about, the current state with, uh, of regulation in Russia. So the new systems of surveillance actually uh, would absolutely break through ev- all v- VPNs. So VPNs yeah. will not work. And in fact, they would endanger people very much. So in you a get certain way, put on a list, yeah. Yeah, this uh, current system of surveillance, it's been already introduced. And for this, you can actually read a lot from a wonderful specialist on surveillance in Russia, Andrei Soldatov, who is a Russian expert, and his partner Irina Baragan, who wrote a lot about these particular systems. And at this moment, I just heard another interview with Russian IT specialists that now moved to Ukraine, who also said that this is the end for VPN for Russia, maybe from this year or etc. Mm. So, I mean, I, within China, at least for a long time it was you know it was tolerated and it was just sort of like yeah. an, a barrier i think they probably wanted some class of their citizens or their expats at least to be able to like still access this information so yeah. maybe it was always a deliberate choice mm-hmm. to not lock it down there and uh, yeah that's definitely possible yeah that- from my experience in china it really depends on where you are in mm-hmm. some places, platforms wouldn't work. In others, they just all work. So right. it, I don't know enough specifics, but my experience... It's granular. A level yeah, of in Beijing, you could literally read anything, in fact. If you go oh. a little off, suddenly it's more That's difficult. That's interesting. Oh. Oh, there we go. Does that come through your phone? That's... 
uh, it's an app on my phone which informs me about the air ride siren. Can you then change? You could change the sound, I guess, on the phone to something uh, else besides the air ride. No, room. that's actual siren. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. So you will hear it in a minute from the outside. The up cam- comes exactly. half a minute first. Are you safe where you are? Yeah. Do you need to move somewhere? I think I am, yeah. So this is a fourth or fifth today. Mm. So. Oh, wow. And what, what with so many and then nothing happening, I mean... What triggers it? Yeah, what triggers it? And then are, is it in is it Russia's interest to trigger them often so that people are... Sort of don't take them. The cyber, yes. Is there a cyber war aspect of that? Oh yes, yeah. So the siren is the unified system around all Ukraine, but in my app, so I have a specified region and even town there. But usually, if the rocket is shot in a certain direction, several regions are under the threat, mm. like about three or four regions at the same time. And all of these regions are getting this automatic alert. Hmm. So you heard this app, but I also received it on three other channels. I also have a couple of Telegram channels. Google Alert now sends us that. So I got like Google Alert. I I got uh, my local channel. I got my government channel and I got the app. So all these things were just now lining up but it will just come in in a moment from the outside because it seems like it takes them a little longer to (laughs) maybe press this local button here or what, I don't know. So that's when the threat is active and then you receive a second signal. Yeah, the rocket is flying our direction at this moment. Wow. And then you are then given an all clear signal once that threat is no longer present? Yeah, and you're getting, yeah, so, and this uh, nice female voice would tell you that the siren is off now when it's off and it can last from 15 minutes to several hours if they just keep shooting rockets in one direction so the uh, the siren would be active like all this time and uh, yeah i remember the longest here was three or three and a half hours so wow Damn. Yeah, the shortest is 15 minutes. Sometimes it canceled almost immediately if the rocket was taken down or if actually hit somewhere. Wow. In one hour, I will check the news and I will know if anything was hit in the several regions. I mean, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, mm-hmm. I mean, it starts to then just your the, those machines and then the alert systems in your body, it becomes one continuous system of yeah. some sort. But now I'm sitting, I'm talking to you and kind of I'm totally used mm-hmm. to this, but my heart actually started beating faster at this moment. Ours did I too. did too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so because yeah. as I say, like this, this siren, this uh, sound is, especially when you hear it, close in town it's unbelievable it consumes you i can't imagine this uh, kind of strange way yeah well maybe this is a good pivot another thing that you've researched extensively is nuclear power and nuclear threats and the way in which nuclear facilities can be manipulated through cyber warfare and it strikes me that with just the presence of a nuclear facility there is the constant psychological threat 
that can very easily be triggered among civilians. Um, early in this war, or, you know, the war since February 24th, the Russians captured Chernobyl. And you write very eloquently about how just that gesture alone, Russians have captured Chernobyl, produces a kind of fear in people because of all the preconceptions of all those different things. And you also say that cyber warfare and nuclear warfare are materially very, very different. Yet the two work together to produce terror that's beyond anything. But maybe you can take us through a little bit. Maybe we could use Chernobyl as a case study of how Russia and perhaps also Ukrainian media, how they've used that as a pawn in this war, both for as a energy resource and as a real threat. Yeah, it's very interesting case indeed and I've been quite interested in this nexus of cyber and nuclear for quite a while in the past, we would just have some cases of just a program installed in uh, Iranian nuclear power uh, plant. And that was the top of it. But what is happening today is all systems are communicating and the nuclear power station is an element in a vast digital infrastructure, right? So within Ukraine, but also outside Ukraine, because the plant is connected to different international organizations who also participate in observing and management and all of it because after Chernobyl obviously you know everything about nuclear power is a global concern nothing actually makes us global just as fast as probably uh, radiation some people would say that the world became global after Chernobyl uh-huh. right so when this cloud literally traveled around the world and that's why as I say it's a very physical infrastructure, uh, but it is a part of very complex digital information infrastructure. So in a certain way, if you cut off certain electricity as it happened in Chernobyl, right? So suddenly the electricity was cut off and the system was disconnected from the global measurement and observation system. Then it's also a digital, it's a cyber event. What we see here is how this nuclear power plant is weaponized and it's literally turned into a potential bomb right? So it's a nuclear power station, which aim is to produce power for civilians. But at the same time, it was weaponized. It was used for these barbaric negotiations and pressure. That is the most unprecedented case that we have seen so far in this area. Nothing like this was done before. But what I also was trying to argue with this case is that how this case of what is identified today as nuclear terrorism also has its colonial context and colonial legacy. Because this system, the plant and all the Ukrainian power plants were built during the Soviet times. Not all of them were completed or finished or started working, but this whole infrastructure of nuclear power plants, it was 
all because of the Soviet fascination with the atomic energy and hopes that atomic energy would help to revive stagnating economy, right? So there was a lot of invested fantasy and money and whatnot in, in that. And Petro Kotin, who is the director of Energatom, the organization that monitors and kind of collects them all in one system, he mentioned that in 2000s, Putin, who just came to power, was very fascinated with the ideas and was propagating the idea of making all nuclear power plants as one structure, just like they were in the Soviet Union, so that they would obey one single office in Moscow. And he was propagating this idea for a number of years. It didn't work out for different reasons, obviously. But when we saw this attempt to invade and capture, right, so in Zaporizhia is still being under, under the occupation, the biggest nuclear power station in Europe with many reactors there, right, so six, I believe, it's still under the occupation. And Chernobyl is very symbolic because it immediately connects to this trauma, to the catastrophe. And you can see how it resonates with this imperial fantasy of having control over the atomic energy production. So, yeah, so this is the case of nuclear terrorism, but also that follows the steps of nuclear colonialism. I mean, that's an excellent way of tying all these different threads together. And one can imagine further that it's in Putin's interest to revive these traumatic memories of Chernobyl so that nuclear power is not propagated in Europe as a way of getting off Russian energy. Even though all science says that it's really the best way to go, Putin wants to use this. He's so good in terms of memetics. He knows how to play into the emotions. Well, he also thinks of actions, reactions, reactions, rea- reactions reactions to react- the reactions. Like literally reactions, yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. That's where cyber war becomes nuclear in all possible meanings, right? Yeah, it absolutely does, right? It is really nuclear in all possible meetings. The atomized individual reacting to what's happening. Um, But, you know, also it seems like cyber warfare can have the catastrophic effects of nuclear warfare now that we are a very digitally dependent society. Well, also just that with these enmeshed systems and with these single layers of digital systems connecting everything, war spreads through all of these same networks, right? Right? Like these networks can be simultaneously like peacetime entertainment networks, commerce networks, uh, political networks, wartime, yeah. literally vectors of warfare. Uh, everything can travel through these networks and everything sort of gets blurred together into a new sort of a digital fog of war yeah. where the use of networks becomes fuzzy because commercial networks are used militarily entertainment well, yeah, networks are used militarily you you're not sure who the speaker is who the person deploying the attack or the information or the stimuli the stimuli really is and whether you know normally everything is instrumentalized for commerce for value on these 
networks, I well, would Putin say. Putin thinks in different terms. Well, but, but yeah. the thing is now they're instrumentalized for war, right? Right. I mean, his idea of value is just, he just is a but different framework. Well, you too, right? Yeah. So yeah. It, it's, it's again, we call it here as a fossil fuel war, right? Yeah. So even though it has uh, a nuclear element there, but in the end, this is a fossil fuel war. Yeah. Hopefully the last one. You know, because we actually need to move on from these structures, these ways of killing ourselves on the planet. So how then do Ukrainians perceive nuclear power as a strategic source of energy? Um, Different. We also have different groups, obviously, right? So, but uh, the industry is developing very well here and big part of population supports it. But I myself quite quite curious how would this intensus change certain perception. As a scholar of Chernobyl, I've been seeing the unwillingness to look or think or reflect on Chernobyl and that catastrophe. I saw more people from the outside of Ukraine who actually traveled there to the Chernobyl zone than from the inside of Ukraine. And that was always super surprising for me. And when I first did it in 2016, I came to Ukraine for half a year and was giving lots of talks. And I remember traveling in different universities, speaking to students, to uh, professors. And I was always asking who traveled there and almost never Ever people did. Really? And I was always like, why is this? I mean, I came and I saw like millions of possible projects and questions. And uh, is it because it's like a Russian problem? Uh, no, it's because of the trauma. This is still the trauma that is incredibly active. But at least this is my reading of that response. But at the same time, there are interesting and big groups of enthusiasts, people who study the Chernobyl zone the populations of animals and whatnot there. And those radiobiologists, for example, who study, because it's interesting, the Chernobyl zone is often referred to as a scientific polygon. This is because it's a unique place where certain elements came together or actually came apart, (laughs) right, in a certain way, which created a very unique situation for certain observations and study. And there are such an amazing projects that being done here, for example, even certain reinterpretations of life, amazing discoveries of how certain fungi actually grow towards radiation. Mm-hmm. So there are certain forms of life that develop in a particular way just in that environment, which actually um, allows scholars to raise so interesting questions. One of the projects that I now doing or thought that I would be doing before the war, just before the war, I got a grant on a project which is called Chernobyl Science, where I was telling that story. Obviously, what I'm trying to say by all this is that we still know very little about this situation. We haven't processed the trauma. Uh, now we have another trauma on the top of it. And how are we going to deal with all of those layers, it's um, very difficult 
to estimate at this moment. But, for example, my colleague and collaborator, Lena Porinyuk, who is a wonderful Ukrainian radiobiologist, she, in one of the conversations, she mentioned that this whole way how nuclear energy would be operating will change absolutely after those occupations because even the way how they would build the buildings will change, mm. right? So how they would arrange them, how they would organize the work there, right? So how a security system would work, all of it will change. Huh. So, I mean, like this whole architecture and construction and processes everything will be different. Immunological nuclear science is yeah. like been inoculated. That's like Chernobyl catastrophe changed this, yeah. right? So it's only after the Chernobyl catastrophe, all stations were immediately covered with the particular uh, particular structures, yeah. etc. Right? So we learned a lot from, from these uh, dangerous moments and uh, definitely we will see some changes that are even difficult to predict at this moment. So n- nuclear Nuclear war strategy famously has a very formalized and jargon-rich doctrine. First strike, no first use, failed, deadly, mutually assured destruction, massive retaliation. Uh, but we can also imagine like incredible devastation with cyber warfare if it were to target essential grids like energy or communication. And I wonder if there is any formalized strategy or agreement between nations in cyber warfare or are there any analogies between the strategies of this of very or- uh, deeply studied and, and long-standing existential threat of nuclear war and the sort of more emergent one of cyber warfare? I think it's very important to think these things as all together, right? Mm. That's why I'm always emphasizing the nexus, right? So cyber is not disconnected from kinetic, it's mm-hmm. not disconnected from certain materialities of the infrastructures. It's uh, very interesting to speak about different strategies, interesting but difficult in the sense that this whole complexity of cyber war is that sometimes it's very difficult to identify whether it's a preconceived strategy or something something is a random event. So that's why we are speaking about the significance or the importance of random events as parts of certain strategies, of certain plans, and that sometimes they can be missed and sometimes they can be recognized and mobilized in a certain way. But they are random, but at the same time, they become part of the structure. So in cyber war, we also have a reconception of what even strategy means, mm-hmm. right? Because strategy is something that you would think like something pre-planned, preconceived and whatnot, right? But here we can see it's unfolding event. So there is a lot of communication between different systems, unexpected turns, or actually failed plans, right? So something was planned and it doesn't work out and and so on. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much of this war too. We've seen so much improvisation, right? Yeah. Using yeah. DJI uh, drones meant yeah. for uh, for hobbyists yeah. to take uh, aerial video uh, repurpose for military use. Yeah, We've had uh, Elon Musk sending Starlink routers right. to the battlefield. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah I, I guess it is a, a post-strategy yeah. state of warfare, maybe in a or certain way. Post like 20th century style, well, like post yeah. like 
return to baseline, Co- like a dynamic yeah, system. Emerging. Like poking those baselines all the time, challenging them, yeah, right? Exactly. So that's precisely what we learned with cyber, right? Yeah. So it's all about what these challenges. And in this, it's very close to uh, nuclear, right? Because that's precisely what nuclear tensions are about in the current mix of things. it's actually similar. (laughs) The potential for destruction comes more and more similar. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting that like in the Stuxnet worm, they had the capacity to take out that enrichment facility, apparently. I mean, according to the guy in Hamburg whose company like found I mean, or whatever. They had the capacity yeah. to take down any, any, any right, a, they anything were that used this very common yeah. uh, machine that controls oscillations right, and, the and Siemens machine. frequencies. But it was just enough to show the Iranians that they had that capacity. They didn't need to actually do it. So it had that glimmer of mad. It was like the same thing as, you know, Kim Jong-un marching out his nukes. I'm just showing you I have this capacity. I don't need to actually deploy this. And so there's something that is similar in the psychology of it. Um, It could be also read in a little different way, though. I could also, in order to show, you need someone to see it, right? So, but... The initial thing there was that they were not supposed to recognize it as a virus, right? So they were supposed to take it as a physical malfunction of those centrifuges. Right. And they were replacing them all over again. So in a certain way, it meant to be invisible until it was randomly (laughs) discovered. Right. So in a certain way, but then again, it's very interesting because that's the way how I also oppose the Stuxnet and, for instance, the occupation of the Chernobyl station. Stuxnet was supposed to slow down the production of supposedly built nuclear bomb. Right. But the occupation of the nuclear power station was an acceleration of weaponizing an object into nuclear bomb. Yeah, right? that's very so, true. Right. Interesting parallels. Yeah, super interesting parallels. And ones that I'm sure we'll continue to meditate on. I, I wonder... The kind of work that you're doing, do you imagine yourself or your line of work playing a role in the rebuilding of Ukraine's infrastructure? Because you are thinking about the critical intersection of cyber and major energy infrastructure, for instance. Yeah, I interesting to fantasize about that <laughs> at this moment. Yeah, I don't know, but I would imagine, not that I'm too excited about it, that the Ukraine would probably go into more smart cities direction, I think. There is a lot of enthusiasm about this. It worries me. Mm-hmm. And of course, at this moment, we should be worried about all sorts of things. But I know there is a lot of enthusiasm and expectation. So Ukrainian government sees the future very much digitally integrated. And of course, we can speak about various ways of digital integration, etc., etc. But sometimes I just like, I, probably it's easier for me to actually even speak uh, about the time before the war, where I saw certain plans being made. I was worried about all two corporate platforms and what is open invitation to come and be here. 
somehow I see uh, this tendency will continue probably and probably will accelerate even more, especially now when all the companies sort of supported Ukraine, right? Mm. So from Musk to whoever, and probably the government would think since it's already working together since it's already support that would keep moving to this direction. I don't know. So we'll see. Maybe people like me would be also helpful to offer certain suggestions or critiques or whatnot about certain strategies. But at this moment, I guess we will just need to survive. At this moment, we don't even know what's going to happen between now and May 9th. Yeah. And whether this war will end within a couple of weeks or it's a several-year war. I mean, and as you noted in your piece, I mean, both outcomes are terrifying in different ways. Terrifying in different ways. Yeah. And they are absolute possibilities. Yeah. Well, Svetlana, thank you for spending this time with us. Uh, For us this evening, Dan in the morning in LA, thinking through some of these different vectors. Do you have anything that you'd like to promote? Well, not an optimistic, but I do want to announce a kind of a project that I've been working on several directions. And I think this is an important topic to keep in mind as we all observe the situation from close distance or from afar, is uh, the project on decolonization. So I'm working on several things with Russian and Ukrainian and Western colleagues, where we think together to create a decolonial critique related to this context. Because one of the problems here is, especially now, we see very much mobilized and militarized in this war, that a big part of Russian population do not consider imperialism as a bad thing, (laughs) right? So this is a moment of pride. And this is a huge problem. And that's where we recognize that something has to be done with the recognition of internal colonization of many ethnic groups and populations of Russia, right? So nobody speaks about this and now even dangerous to bring up. So that's one of the things that we're really working on. Is there um, a particular place where all of this is aggregated or this is just in general, you're working on this along with some of your colleagues? This is just very fresh. Yeah, Yeah, it's already, there are a couple of different groups. Some of them, my colleagues from SFU, we're thinking about about one aspect of this. Maybe there will be a series of interviews, conversations, a particular topic. But I'm very happy to actually that a number of Russian colleagues are involved in this. But I think it's very complicated to have these conversations at the moment when we are being raped, attacked, and etc. Right? So how do you even talk at this moment, right? So we will need to think how to talk. Sounds good. Well, I look forward to reading what comes out of it or seeing what comes out of it. Very interested to see also your continued reflections on what's happening in Ukraine and reading your research filtered through your blog has been really illuminating for me. And so thank you again for your time today. Thank you very much for your amazing questions and (laughs) very valid critiques as well. All right. Well, thank you and have a good night and be safe. Thank you for listening to the New Models podcast. And thank you, Svetlana Matvienko, for coming on the show. You can follow Svetlana's blog, Dispatches from the Place of Imminence, at networkcultures.org. For us, this conversation will continue to guide not just our understanding of contemporary warfare, 
but also the risk profiles of critical infrastructure and the degree to which smart design will necessarily be a part of climate action. But we'll save that for another episode. In the meantime, a quick shout out to the New Models crew that has descended on New York City this week, in part to stage an IRL event titled Devirtualizer at Woodbine in Brooklyn. Our understanding is that the event is already sold out, but that there is a waiting list. Email Laith, that's L-E-I-T-H, at newmodels.io for more info. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Low Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com. For Web3 access, visit channel.xyz.